Ruth Bader Ginsburg was 87 years old when she passed away on Friday, surrounded by family at her home in Washington, D.C. Only hours later, hundreds of mourners gathered on the steps of the Supreme Court, and some of them said the Kaddish, that's the prayer of mourning, on what was also the first night of the Jewish New Year, a day for hope and new beginnings. There's going to be a lot to say in the coming days and the weeks about all the work that is ahead of us to honor Justice Ginsburg's memory, her legacy, her dreams. But for now, we just wanted to share her voice with you. In late January, I sat down for an almost hour-long interview with Justice Ginsburg. It was the greatest joy and privilege of my 20-plus years covering the Supreme Court. The conversation was part of our special project, tracing the lives of the other women who attended Harvard Law School with her. The justice was funny and precise and reflective and also just really eerily certain that this whole constitutional democracy thing is going to work out in the form of a more perfect union. Slate Plus members heard this interview in August as part of our feature on the women of Ginsburg's class. We are now making it publicly available for the very first time. You're all arriving at Harvard in 1956. Did you even see women when you were first sort of moving in and settling in and walking around, or was it just a sea of men? There were two women in my section, Trudy and Ginny Davis, later Norton. So when I went to class, there were the two other women in the class. And and then I think our section was something like 125. But it was a jump up from Marty's class. There were five women in his class. There were more the first year that they took women. And and did they deliberately divide you into different sections? Like, did they want to have one or two women? Yeah, in they had... And let's see, there were nine of us, so they had at least two in every section. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting, I think it was Carol who said in her interview that we were all oddities, was the word she used. You know, we were all sort of outliers. And, and I think initially when we started this project, we thought that you'd all clump together and be like a pack. And I was remembering when I started at Stanford Law School, you know, in 1992, all the women were just in a pack. But it doesn't seem as though that necessarily organically happened. You didn't kind of travel all the women kind of having each other's backs, right? It was a little more complicated? Well, for me, and I had no time to waste because Jane was 14 months when I started. So my time was used very efficiently in, in for classes, for studying after class, come home at four o'clock to take, to take care of Jane. So I didn't have time for any socializing or, um, except on weekends. So the only the only person in, among the women uh, for a time I was uh, close to Jenny uh, Davis, and that continued after law school. It may have been, I don't, well, for one thing, she was in my section. And she was just a lovely person. 
she was a, a Christian scientist. So when Marty had cancer, his third year or second year, she visited him in the hospital uh, a few times, and I was wondering how that would be for her. Because I watched her once in class. She was sitting a couple of rows ahead of me, and she cut her finger. She had paper cut, and her finger was bleeding. And I wanted to go over and blot it for her, but she didn't. She just let it... <laughs> <laughs> just bleeding onto the desk? Yeah. <laughs> and so you, were, you, you so, weren't sure how she would be when Marty was in the hospital? Because... Yeah, because reacting to a hospital. <laughs> can, can, you, can you talk about... There was such a dividing line in the interviews between the people who came with children and spouses... And the people who kind of some of the women that we talked to were having cooking dinner for the, all the men in the class, you know, were described, oh, you know, it was great. I would get notes because, you know, all the men were falling over themselves to help me out. There, was that the demarcation point between the women is the people who sort of were all business because they had other things going on and the people who were, were a little bit maybe there to look around? In my first year, uh, I was the only one who was married and had a child. Carol, Carol, I think she got married. Did she get married while she was in law school or after? And Alice got married at the end of her first year. Mm-hmm. So my first year, I was the only married woman in the class and the only Mother, because Rhoda Solon or Rhoda Esselbacher took her first year at Penn, and then she was in our second year. So when she came, she was married. She was married, but she wasn't in your in your one L class, right? And so when Carol describes in some of the interviews, she describes you know sitting on the steps and doing crossword puzzles, or was it BJ and Carol and Flora who were all cooking? dinners for the men who were just delighting in the free meals. It just seemed like they were in a really different world than you were. I, I, I think that's so. The cooking began with a... I don't know where John Kaplan went to law school, but he was on the Sanford faculty for years. It was called the Radcliffe Cooking Contest. So he and his roommates got this idea they'd have a competition and they'd have a different girl come and cook for them and at the end of the year they'd give a prize to the winner of the Radcliffe cooking contest then some of the 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 guys at the law school decided they would take up but the the idea that John had but they would use the women in the class instead of the Radcliffe girls so and this was fun for the women I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there, I think... there was, there was a, in those years, the Harvard Law Wives Club. So most of the women that I knew were married to men, mostly in Marty's class. And I got invited uh, to the Law Wives Association because I was a law wife. But that was to help the wives be supportive of their 
husbands who were engaged in this intense education at, at the law school. Did you feel kind of isolated? I mean, did you feel as though you were having a very singular experience that wasn't really comparable to the other women in your class? You must have felt a little bit, I don't want to say alone because you were married, but it what certainly wasn't the experience they were having. Yes, you know, I, I did not feel uh, any lack of companionship. I, mean, I had Marty and um, the people that we socialized with were mainly in his class. And then I, I was just so engaged all the time with either law school or with Jane. So I, I really don't think, I had no time to be lonely or anything like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. just constantly engaged. And it was um, even more intense my second year when Marty had cancer. So one of the things that was really stunning to us when we did the interviews was the women's path to Harvard. And I think when we undertook this, we envisioned a bunch of singularly driven, ambitious women who said, I'm going to go to law school. And as we talked to either the families or to the women themselves, a lot of them were trailing a male law student. A lot of them applied either because they had a boyfriend who was going or they, uh, uh, you know, had a, a, in one case, you know, somebody's dad encouraged them to go. But there wasn't as much, I, I think, agency as I expected. Um, and I know, you know, I, I'm, I'm using the word trailing reluctantly because I know you went uh, in some measure um, to be with Marty. But I, I think I was surprised at how many of them were following a, a man. Yeah, I think an exception to that was Ellie Voss. That was such a tragedy. And you can imagine how the young man who was driving that motorcycle uh, must have felt. I mean, he eventually came to terms with it, and he married, and I hope had a happy life. But So she, I don't think she, Ellie Voss came to Harvard because she was following a boyfriend. B.J., I, I don't know. Uh, we were all, of, of all the women in the class, I was most impressed with her because she had been both a model and an actuary, a very unusual combination. Also, she dated, yeah, was a friend of mine in, in our class. He's in my study group, Herb Lobel. He went out with both B.J. and um, I'm with Jenny Davis. Can, can we talk about the, the story, the, the Dean Griswold story? Yeah. Then I, I only bring it up because um, Flora told us that she actually thought that Dean Griswold was trying to be helpful to women. He was. Dean, there's a book that you probably saw. It's called Pinstripes and Pearls. It's sure. by Judy Hope. And she has as an appendix the budget, what it was going to cost for women to come to the Harvard Law School. The cost was fixing up a bathroom in Austin, Austin Hall, which, by the way, was uh, was always overheated. 
there was asbestos dripping from the ceiling before we knew that asbestos wasn't good for people's health. But that's, and, and in Langdell, the other, there were in those days just two teaching buildings. Langdell had no bathroom accessible to the women students. So it was only the one in the Austin basement. Anyway, the, the dean, each of us had an escort. So we arranged for somebody on the faculty to sit next to each of the women. And my escort was a very well-known Columbia Law School professor, Wexler, Herb Wexler. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm told that the escorts, before they came to the Griswold's home for dinner, uh, went nearby to Judge Magruder's house. He also lived in Belmont. And because the, the dean didn't serve any alcohol, so the, they went there first. And then um, the dean, there were many good things about Dean Griswold, including his bravery in the McCarthy era, in the book he wrote about the Fifth Amendment. But he didn't have a sense of humor. And he, because he had been a proponent of the admission of women, he wanted to assure the doubting Thomases on the faculty that these women were going to do something worthwhile with their law degrees. So he asked that question, why are you here occupying a seat that could be held by a man? Because he wanted to be armed with stories from the women themselves about how they planned to make use of their law degrees and not just waste this wonderful education that they would get. And he didn't have any sense that he he was making the women feel uncomfortable about this. I don't know what Flora told you about her answer, but as I remember it, she said, Dean Griswold, there are X number of us. Well, Ruth Ginsburg doesn't count for this purpose. There are 500 of them. What better place to find a man? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I have to ask what the escorts were. There were escorts to take you they, to... They were just to sit next to us at dinner and, and sit next to us when we moved from the dining room to the living room when he had the chairs arranged in a horseshoe. So Herb Wexler was sitting next to me. In those days, I smoked. Herb was a chain smoker. So I had the ashtray that we were sharing on my lap. And when I got up to say something, all the cigarette butts were on the floor, the <laughs> Griswold's living room, and I didn't know. <laughs> oh, it was what really one of those moments <laughs> when you wish you could have a trap door to fall through. So I mumbled something about my husband is in the second year class, and I think it's important for a wife to understand her husband's work. If you could answer it again today in the full fullness of knowledge well, I never I never it, it wasn't a truthful answer yeah. when I gave it yeah but yeah I am in law school because I w wanted to study law in fact I took the LSAT before Marty did although he was a year ahead of me um we now have to ask you about a story that we heard from several of the women that we, I have to say, my jaw hit the floor. They described something called Ladies' Day. Didn't have it in my section. Mm -hmm. 
The professor notorious for Ladies' Day was Barton Leach. Mm-hmm. My section, we we had no no Ladies' Day. And did you hear the story of how oh, yes, he made yeah. them sing? I, I didn't know about the singing. I, I knew about lining them up in the first row, and after ignoring them for the whole semester that one day, concentrating all their attention. But I think my classmates were warned by the women in the class ahead uh, what they could expect. Um, oh, they were, when I, this is a funny story. When I was now years later, I'm at Columbia, and Billie Jean King has just won her match with um, Bobby Riggs. One of the professors who announced with great glee that tomorrow, in honor of Billie Jean King, we're going to celebrate Ladies' Day. And he had no idea what the history of Ladies' Day had been. Was it was it deliberate hazing, or was it meant to be funny? The the I mean, it sounds like he just was kind of bullying them. Um, it was interesting because both Carol and Flora remembered it, like every the singing and every sort of detail of it. But they both laughed about it, and then after laughing about it, Carol said, that was so degrading. But it was interesting because I felt like it was such a window into, it's both funny, but also kind of deliberately humiliating. Yeah. yeah. Well, there were episodes like that. One in my section, we had six days a week, classes six days a week, so Saturday morning classes. And we had as visitors, two people we'd been close to in the army. And I brought the the woman to class with me, Jill Marmont, and she, she uh, far from going to law school, she had not even gone to college. So McCurdy, my contracts professor, calls on her, and and I stood up and said, she's my house guest. He said, any fool can answer that question. You answer it. And then I got up when, uh, and, and told him that, that he was rude to my guests and I would answer the question. Really? And, yes. And, and, and he said something about Mrs. Ginsburg being a killjoy. Did he give you a C plus in contracts? No, <laughs> but I had one of the maybe the best teacher I ever had. My first year in law school was Ben Kaplan. He was never, never did anything to wound or offend. He was a master of the Socratic technique, but he always used it in a positive way. So a student would give an answer, he would rephrase it and said, "You mean." And so McCurdy was a typical Harvard professor at that time and liked to make students feel uncomfortable. One of the things that we heard from Alice's family was that she got on Law Review. She was the she she sort of made it to Law Review and then they immediately sent out 
you know, we, we don't have dorms for you. You know, it's only, only the men, you know, who are arriving early are going to get dorms and there's, you know, no place for you to, to sleep. Um, and, and it seemed as though, again, they, they made an effort to accommodate her sort of on the fly. But um, it was another one of those, you know, that the initial reaction is just, well, girls just can't be here <laughs> in the dorms. Uh, and it felt like another one of those situations where we, we couldn't tell how often there were, you know, women were deliberately trying to fix it for the women who came behind and how, how often it was just, I just need a place to stay so I can be on Law Review. Um, it, well, it, she, the Law Review invitations went out at the end of the first year. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a competition. There. It was just strictly on the basis of grades. And so Alice, she was getting married, or she had just gotten married, and she just turned it down because of her husband. The dormitory was, was something else. I had come from Cornell, where the girls had to live in the dorm. That was Cornell's excuse for having a four-to-one ratio, four guys to every gal. Because the boys could live in College Town, but the girls had to live in the dormitory. I get to the Harvard Law School, and there's no room for the girls in the, the dorm. Didn't matter to me because we I wasn't going to be in the dorm anyway. But that that was one of the many ironies that the girls needed to be protected by being sheltered inside a dorm at Cornell, but at Harvard they had to find their own place to stay. So they didn't. They didn't at any point create housing for the women. They mm-hmm. just said, "Good luck finding an apartment in Cambridge." Yeah, that was the yeah during was, during my time. Another version of the sort of same thing was I think this is Marilyn Rose. She was very frustrated. She wanted to be in the public defenders uh, mm-hmm. a group at Harvard, and it was all male, and they were not going to let her in. And so she does the same thing where she, instead of trying to get herself in makes sure that women following her can be in the public defenders group. And so I think I'm just I'm asking a kind of a complicated question, but we're trying to, there sometimes you just meet a roadblock. And a lot of the women then took it upon themselves to make sure that wasn't going to happen to whoever mm-hmm. came after. And I think what, what I'm trying to understand is, is that just a function of, that's what you did. If you couldn't, if you couldn't get it, then you made sure the people who came after you got it. Or is that something Harvard bred? I think you, you get that sense from Judy Hope's book too, that they benefited from the women in the class ahead of them, and in turn, they wanted to, the, the women in, in the class behind them to have it easier. But most of this, you know, it just came with the territory. We didn't even question it. We, I don't remember anyone asking to have a, a women's bathroom put in in Langdell Hall. We just accepted that that's the way it was. And the same thing with the dormitories. They did have housing for married students. None of that, I forgot the name of the, that housing, 
may still exist. So some of the, uh, Marty had been in service for two years, so there are a number of people in his class who had been called into service at the tail end of the Korean War and then were coming back to law school. And some of those lived in the, the apartments for married students, but all the, their wives, none of their wives were attending law school. A lot of women, by the way, who describe Marty as a great ally, but didn't have a lot of men around that were supporting them. We were wondering if you had stories of other men who were massively supportive. The two then who tried to persuade Alice Vogel twice, again, of her first year and of her second year, John Winston and Frank Goodman. Frank ended up on the University of Pennsylvania law faculty, and he was married to Henry Friendly's daughter, Joan Friendly, one of his daughters. And John Winston, I don't know what he did, but he's still living, and he's living in New York, but they were very supportive of me, especially on the law review. They're both very funny fellows. But then there was another type. There was someone at, who had been at, a year ahead of me at Cornell who assured me that Harvard Law School was a very tough place and I couldn't rely on a good memory to get me through. So there were those types that was sort of resented the women's presence. But most of the, the people, I mean, for me, Harvard Law School was not a competitive place. That second year, my second year, Marty Sir, when he was diagnosed with cancer, they rallied round us, his classmates, and they got him through that very trying year. And I had no takers in all of his classes. Members of his class came first to the hospital and then to home to give him kind of private tutorials. So that was my experience with Harvard Law School. And to this day, I remember the people who were so helpful to us. And Bonnie ended up having the best grades that he ever had in, in a semester. He, he attended, I think the semester was 15 weeks. He was in class for two weeks, but he had the best teachers, his classmates. One of the most, I'm sure, unsurprising things that I'm going to tell you is that all of these women had a really horrendous time getting jobs. Uh, yeah. And that the same doors that were closed to you were clo closed to them. And in many ways, their stories track yours where they have to keep sort of moving orthogonally to what they want to get to because they can't get directly there. But Flora said something that I thought was sweet and we wanted to have you react. She said, you know, even after graduation and her father was telling her, don't even bother to get a law job. You're never going to get one, you know, find something else. Um, she would sort of look at you and say, well, you know, if, if, if Ruth Ginsburg can't get a job, then I'm going to keep trying. Like she used you as her kind of marker of, I'm not going to give up because this is systemic. Um, yeah. And I thought that was such a, it was a, a very, it's not the way you think that story would go, but she was using the fact that you were struggling to, to double down her effort. There was one woman in Marty's class 
Nancy Boxley, later Tepper. She did get a job. She got a, a job with Whitney North Seymour's firm, but she did it. All through law school, I thought that Nancy Boxley from Virginia was in the fox hunting crowd. It turned out that she was Jewish. She disguised who she was. And that's how she did get a job with a, with a Wall Street firm. But for, for me, it was there wasn't a single firm in New York. Two who called me back, I came down to the interviews, but in the end, and one of the reasons, Dan showed it, my nephew showed it in, in the film, was they were concerned about how their wives would feel about working, a man working closely with the women. And, and, and it amazed me because they all had women secretaries. But that's just the way it was. Now, Jerry Gunther tells a story that I was not aware of until he wrote it. And it's in the Hawaii Law Review. There was some issue um, about me. He said, when he was in charge of clerkships for Columbia students, that he called every judge in the Southern District all the Second Circuit judges. And then he thought he had a, a good prospect, and that was Judge Palmieri, who had been a Columbia undergraduate and a Columbia Law School graduate. And as Jer Jerry told the story, he said, give her a chance, and if she doesn't work out, uh, there's a young man in her class who's with a downtown firm, and he'll jump in and take over. But if you won't give her a chance, then I will never recommend another Columbia clerk to you. Jerry tells that story. And I thought all along that Palmieri took a chance on me because he had two daughters and then a, a son who was the third child in the family. And he was envisioning how he would want the world to be for his daughters. It was not the case in later years. He did become a big champion of women's opportunities. One of his daughters became a doctor, and he was very incensed about the discrimination that she was encountering, the uncompromising hours that she, that she had to work. But anyway, so I, I went through the clerkship thinking that's why Judge Palmieri took me on. Would, but as Jerry tells the story, Palmieri wasn't resistant to having a woman as a clerk. He had already had one. But he was concerned about Jane, that he might need me and she might be sick. Or... I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it feels like Justice Ginsburg to think that somebody was a kind of enlightened champion of women only to find out he took you under duress because well, he was threatened. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard you tell the story of 
Chief Justice Rehnquist mm-hmm. and how, you know, he had a, a, a real evolution in how he thought mm-hmm. around the Family Medical Leave Act. Mm-hmm. And this is not really somebody having uh, a, an evolution as much as just being forced to take you and then realizing years later, maybe, that, oh, that was yeah. a good idea. Yes, yeah. I think the the other thread I want to just pull on from the interviews is is there were so many women who described just being unbelievably proud of you. You know, Carol talked about, you know, it's clear you represent so much that she is so proud of and she sees it as her achievement too. And then there were some who were like, I think, frankly, a little jealous, you know, who felt as though you had support from Marty, you had uh, a loving spouse who put you in your career first. And, you know, if they'd had some of those breaks, they may may have had a, a very different life. And I'm sure you're not hearing this from the first for the first time. But it it was just such a complicated story about what we thought was a simple story of sisterhood and support mm-hmm. and mutual admiration. It's complicated. And um, I think it made us think as we were doing this project that when you're the only and really the only, you are in some sense in this zero-sum situation with the w- women around you. I mean, it's just hard to be big-hearted and generous when I guess some of them felt like you were getting their breaks. And I don't know even exactly what my question is other than to say, I'm wondering if while you were in it, you had that sense that this was a, a, a little bit fraught, that it was competitive and supportive and it was n- not uncomplicated. Well, uh, as I said, I had no time to think about emotions or and Rhoda Sullen I told you she was in the other Jewish sorority mm-hmm. Cornell, not not mine but I had no idea that she was ever jealous of me I mean that that surprised me for for the women in my class in Marty's class it was getting that first job that was powerfully hard if the woman got her foot in the door, she did the job very well, and the second job was not the same hurdle. What you're finding about these these are not flaming feminists, these women, and it's just pretty much the same in a book that I hope will be for much, very much longer see the light of day, and it's Herma Hill Kay wrote uh, many biographies of the 14 women in law teaching across the country who preceded her. She was the 15th woman on any law faculty. When she died, I think she died in 2017, that manuscript got lost. Um, I don't know the full story of why it wasn't published earlier, but I wasn't at Berkeley in September, and I encouraged Dean Chermerinsky. They were having a celebration of her, and I said, if you really want to celebrate her, you'll see that her book is, is published. She spent 10 years writing it, 
and it tells the story of each of these women. They have every kind of personality, some shy, some bold. So there wasn't a type that became the first women. But I have two classes with women in them, because when I transferred to Columbia, that class was considerably smaller than Harvard, but it had 12 women, including one who has been my friend for life. It's Nina Appel, who was dean of Loyola Chicago Law School for, for many years. But of the women in my Harvard class, I stayed in touch with Ginny Norton for, for many years. In fact, at the, the summer after my second year, we, we had found an apartment across the street from the place where the law school is now, but we were going to live with Marty's parents for the summer. So Ginny Davis was living in our apartment that that summer. She was taking some courses at Columbia, not law courses. So she's she's the only one in in the class that I stayed in touch with. I heard about Flora every now and then. Flora's a hoot. You'll love her interview. <laughs> it was it was something. It was something else. At the very end of her interview, I said, you know what what should we be telling men? And she said that they should be better. <laughs> they should just be better. And that was very simple for her. But I, I do, I love what you're saying, which is some of them were not flaming feminists and yeah. some of them were just having fun and some of them have gone on to have illustrious careers and some have not. And th- this wasn't a, pro- a feminist project. Right. Yeah. Right. I interviewed you a couple of years ago when Glamour made you Women of the Year. And I interviewed you and I said, you know, what do you do about young women who are coming up who look at your life as though it's a million years ago and couldn't happen again and yet they're still facing, you know, glass ceilings at law firms and, and limited, in some way, not limited the way your life was, but limited opportunities and deep frustration about work-life balance. And um, I I feel as though if I were a 1L listening to your story, it would seem like science fiction, so far away and so hard to relate to. And yet, I wonder if you can tell me the parts of, of what you were seeing at Harvard that are still urgently important for women to focus on. It's it's the unconscious bias. It's the expectation. Your lowered expectation when when you hear a, a woman speaking. I think that still go that still goes on. That instinctively, when a man speaks, he will be listened to. Where people will not expect this, the woman to say anything of of value. But I, all of the women of my generation have had time and again that experience where you say something at a meeting and nobody makes anything of it. And maybe half hour later, a man makes the identical point and people react to it and say, good idea. That, I think, is a, a problem that persists. 
and getting over unconscious bias by becoming conscious of it, which I thought, I've told the story about the symphony orchestra many times, how people were so sure that they could tell the difference between a woman playing and a man, and when put to the, when blindfolded, they, they could not. We are so grateful for your time. This has been such an amazing window into a part of the story we just didn't know. Thank you so very, very much, Justice Ginsburg. You're more than welcome. It's amazing. It was amazing to me when I heard from you how distinctly I remember each of these women. Like, can you imagine their faces and your? Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you know the story that Willis Reese, well, not the story about him. Which Willis Reese was a great conflict professor at Columbia. And he said, oh, there's one thing he regrets about the old days. He said, when the class was moving slowly and you wanted to get a crisp, bright answer, you called on the woman. She was always prepared. prepared. <laughs> but nowadays, he said, the woman... There's no difference. The women are <laughs> unprepared. unprepared. That's, that's, that's progress, right? But it, no, that was another sense that one thing that I did feel in law school was that if I flubbed, that I would be bringing down my entire sex. Right. That it, you weren't just failing for yourself, but people would say, well, what do you expect of a women, woman? It's like they would say about a woman driver. Right. <laughs> so, so I was determined not to leave that impression. And in my first year class was Anthony Lewis, who mm -hmm. was, was on a Neiman Fellowship that year. I didn't know that. And he, so that meant he could take courses any place in the university, any year in the law school. So he was in Ben Kaplan's first year procedure class. And I came home after the first day, and I said to Marty, if they're all that smart, I'll never make right, it. Right, right. And, and then I said, okay, I'm going to talk in class as often as, as this Mr. Lewis. Tony Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time and for yeah, your memories. This interview and the project, The Class of RBG, would not have been possible without the support of Slate Plus. So if you can, please consider signing up as a member to support our work and everything we'll be covering in the coming months at Slate. You can do that at slate.com slash amicus plus. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.